Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Attention all personnel, please clear the launching area. Fire. Fire. Oh, baby. I'll give it to you. That looks really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set, sir. Hello, welcome to Space Boffins, proudly stretching the definition of monthly podcast since 2011. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists and I'm Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue Nelson and we promise it's worth the wait. Um, After William Shatner contemplates the view of Earth from space, we'll be discussing the importance of space technology to solve problems on our own planet. We'll also speak to Apollo legend and NASA employee of 55 years, Jerry Woodfill. Actually, you're talking to Snoopy's veterinarian right here. Because if Snoopy got sick, you know, the lunar lander, I'm the guy that's monitoring Snoopy's functions because I'm the alarm. So I'm not Snoopy's veterinarian. And then if Charlie Brown, the command doesn't work, I'm the doctor. Snoopy is a spacecraft. <laughs> yes, I got that. He sounds very excitable. I'm looking forward to hearing that. He com- is fantastic. Conversation. Jerry is fantastic. <laughs> now, um, you may have seen in the news recently that the um, Bepi Colombo spacecraft had uh, arrived at Mercury, which was a, a slightly premature phrasing by some media as the joint ESA and JAXA mission to Mercury was actually a flyby. This is the mission that launched in 2018 and actually is made up of three spacecraft. I know we featured it uh, on this uh, podcast before, but those three spacecraft are a European transfer module and Mercury planetary orbiter and the Japanese Mercury magnetospheric orbiter. There's quite I find that quite hard to say. Anyway, Dr. Charlie Feldman from the University of Leicester works on the optics of the European orbiter, which, as we'll hear, are based on lobster eyes. Yes, I actually said lobster eyes. And they're being used in an increasing number of new missions. But she began by explaining why Bepi Colombo's journey to Mercury is far from over. We've got more of the journey to go than we've already done, in a way, because it's another four and a bit years before we actually go into orbit, whereas we launched three years ago. So still got a long way to go. So why does it have to do a flyby of its destination in order to get to its destination? Because of the massive ball of gas, which has a huge (laughs) gravity that's not that far away. If you don't decelerate you're going to crash into the sun and then all your work is pointless so yes you have to use mercury flybys to slow yourself down to be able to get into the orbit of mercury and in order to make sure that you do that in a controlled way the best way to do it is to do multiple flybys we have no brakes so you can't just slam on the brakes and stop you have to slowly release energy and the best way to do that is um, by slowly orbiting around mercury The orbits slowly get closer and closer and closer until finally you're in orbit around Mercury. 
That's amazing, really. I must admit, the orbital mechanics of of a lot of these missions is a sort of a symphony in itself, isn't it? Before you even get to the the science in terms of what's going to happen when you get there. Yes, definitely. And that's why the mission is called Beppe Colombo, because it's named after Giuseppe Colombo, who came up with how to get to Mercury and the best way to do it. Yes, it's a a wonderful uh, tribute, isn't, isn't it? Your expertise is in the optics. Tell us about which instrument you're actually involved in. That would be the Mercury Imaging X-ray Spectrometer, which we shorten to mix because it's a lot easier to say. And it's actually two instruments in one. We've got um, a telescope and a collimator, which sit side by side to each other. And they're on board the European Space Agency um, spacecraft because Beppe Colombo is actually three spacecraft joined together, one which is the propulsion module, one which is the Japanese Space Agency's spacecraft, and then there's the European Space Agency spacecraft. And um, the mix instrument is going to try and use X-ray fluorescence of the Mercurian surface in order to be able to work out exactly what Mercury is made of, because actually we don't know exactly what materials are on the surface of Mercury. That's quite extraordinary, really, isn't it? Considering it's one of, you know, it's a fairly close planet. (laughs) Yeah, there's very little that we know about it. I mean, Messenger, which was a NASA mission a few years ago. Yeah, yeah, that gave us a lot of insight and, as always, asked more questions than it actually answered. (laughs) So where does this fluorescence come from? It's the interaction of the solar wind with the Mercurian surface because Mercury doesn't have an atmosphere, unlike us. You don't get the diversion of it around the planet. It hits the, it fully bombards the planet and the high energy electrons excite the surface and then each material gives off a specific signature, which we can then see with our instrument. So you can then tell what element it is based on the the type of fluorescence you get exactly but with this instrument is slightly different because we're actually imaging it as well so instead of just getting the signal to say over there there was a bit of iron we'll actually be able to see the crater and see where each element is within that crater so it's it's a very exciting instrument because it's the first time we're actually doing x-ray imaging of a planet That is pretty special, isn't it? Because you're then going to get a really detailed mineral map effectively. That is the hope, yes. (laughs) Yes, as long as everything works, which is always the hope. um... I'm sure it will. Now, what made you uh, turn to a crustacean as inspiration for your optics? It wasn't me personally. It, (laughs) It actually happened before I was born. There was a lot of studies in the 1970s on crustaceans' eyes. I'm not really sure why. But there was this discovery that actually they don't have lenses for eyes. They have a series of very, very regular square pores, which are arranged over a sphere. So you end up with all of the pores pointing towards the retina and the centre of the retina. And the image is created on the lobster's retina by the reflections of the light on the very smooth surfaces of these pores. And a very intelligent man called Angel published a paper in 1979 where he proposed that actually this is very similar to the concept that we use for focusing x-rays. X-ray astronomy was quite still quite new at that point and we were using traditional what are called Volta 
optics, which are thin ceramic or metal shells. They look a bit like dustbins, really. And they're completely nested inside each other, a bit like a Russian doll. So you get smaller and smaller and smaller ones as you get towards the centre. And we're using very shallow angles. And he just said, hang on, that's exactly what the lobsters and crustaceans' eyes are doing. Could we find a way of reproducing this um, and creating wide field of view x-ray optics because if you look at the traditional x-ray optics they have a very very narrow field of view you know normally limited I saw um, one which said that it it had a field of view of one arc minute whereas we talk in degrees when we talk about lobster eye optics so you could create huge field of view optic by adopting the lobster eyes as a biomimicking I've seen a lobster eye in close-up, but only because I attended one of your talks <laughs> recently at the uh, National Space Museum in Leicester. And it was quite astonishing because when you think of a, a sort of cartoon depiction of a lobster, you know, the traditional claws, that, that sort of orangey-red colour if it's been cooked, and then those sort of big black, slightly bulbous, globular eyes. And it was only when you showed one in close-up that, everybody sort of went because it was like a collection of tiny squares yeah I was very pleased when I found that picture actually because normally we say look here's a lobster and then we show the electron microscope image and although you can see all the squares in the microscope image it's a little bit abstract because you've gone from as you say this orange thing and then all of a sudden you're being told there's squares there. And it, I really liked that picture that I found, which really shows there's the big black ball, but you can actually see all the little squares on top of it. And just give us an idea on a, on a lobster, how big are those squares? And on your instrument, how big are those squares that you're recreating? I'm going to have to admit, I don't actually know how big a lobster's Squares are. Um, if you're using electron microscope then we're assuming yeah that they must be on a similar scale I think they're larger than ours they're probably more around the sort of 100 micron level whereas ours tend to be the 40 or 20 microns so smaller than a human hair yeah so you've recreated that system on your instrument what size are the, the, the squares? Do you, you call them cells? Is that right? Each individual micropore optic or MPO is about four centimetres by four centimetres square. And then inside that are the array of very, very regular square pores, which are about 40 microns to or 20 microns in width. I find optics pores and... a funny, a hard word to, to get your head around because I think of pores... <laughs> As the circular pinpricks on your skin, yeah. whereas you're talking pores as, as squares. And actually, we still talk about pore diameters. Originally, the optics were used as photon multipliers, and then they were developed to be X-ray detectors. And in both cases, they had circular pores. And then when Angel's paper came out, development started to be made to have square pores, square cross-section pores. But the names have stuck. We don't talk about the width of a pore. We talk about the diameter of a pore because it's, it's still from when they were circular. 
Has this design ever been used before on a, a space instrument? There have been instruments on sounding rockets, and there was one that actually went onto the International Space Station, but uh, they were single optics. Uh, whereas we're now putting, you know, 25, some missions are talking about having 100 individual optics on top of the instrument. So we, we are really upscaling how many optics are, are flying. But uh, yes, this is the very first space mission with an instrument of this size. So give us an idea then of the size of your optic. Each individual optic is about four centimetres by four centimetres, but then we tessellate them or put them into an array um, to create the full size of the um, telescope. So in the case of um, Bepi Colombo, the collimator has an array of two by two so a total of four of these optics in the, and then in the telescope we've used a slightly different arrangement so that we have a circular optic and in that arrangement we've got 72 optics but they're in two layers so you only see the front layer of um, 36 individual optics. You've obviously got a, a bit of a waiting game now to, to go until you actually get into orbit around Mercury and your optics can start doing their work. But obviously, in terms of what you're going to do, I mean, this, as you said, this is really exciting in terms of what you're able to detect on the surface of, of Mercury. Have other missions seen the potential here and, and thought, yes, we'll, we'll have some of those lobster optics? Well, lobster optics are really, really versatile. We're actually working on several other missions, one of which is going to do Earth observational science and looking at the magnetosphere and the solar wind interaction. And that mission is called SMILE. But I'm also working on other missions which are looking at exploding stars and gamma ray bursts and transient events. So stars with huge variability, but also the early population of stars. So they're really is a huge variety of things that you can do. If there's x-rays, we can detect them. Charlie Feldman from the University of Leicester. Still to come on Space Boffins, and I can't trail this enough, the Apollo engineer inspired by President Kennedy and still working at NASA. Now, I have always argued that we need to send artists, musicians and even politicians into space. I'm jealous. And journalists. Yeah. I haven't argued that, no, but I, you I can have, argue yes. that. Okay. <laughs> and William Shatner's flight with Blue Origin proves why. This comforter of blue that we have around us, we think, oh, it's blue sky. And there's something you shoot through it all of a sudden, as though you whip off a sheet off you when you're asleep, and you're looking into blackness, into black ugliness. And you look down, and there's the blue down there, and the black up there, and it's, it's just, there is mother and earth and comfort and there's is there death i don't know what is that death is that the way death is and it's gone Jeez. i love that i love that i described it on twitter as him going all lucy in the sky with diamonds and it did remind me of his sort of uh delivery there of something kaleidoscopic it's thoughtful it was brilliant it's so irritating that clip you can hear it in the background there with the idiot billionaires with their champagne in the background yeah i just want you just want to hear william shatner well at one point bezos did try well did effectively interrupt his flow by 
basically asking him, do you want to shake waste some champagne i mean who would waste champagne anyway i wouldn't i'd just well if you're a, if you're a billionaire and and um i think he then realized because shatner just wasn't interested and just said no thank you and was just standing there stunned and yeah when he that for me was an amazing moment of articulate wonder and awe in terms of and, and a reminder to people that this means something, not just on a technological, scientific, adventure, exploration scale, but actually in terms of philosophical meaning and and what it is to be human and to look beyond the earth. So yeah, good on you, Bill. (laughs) Well, I, I do think, and this was why I was, you know, arguing this before, is that it takes someone more than an astronaut to articulate this. This is why you need actors and journalists and writers because and artists. Because they've been because taught, some, haven't they, yeah. to actually suppress the emotion um, so that even if, say, the craft was crashing, they would say something like, you know, engines non-nominal or something like, you know, well, they would, yes. they would I mean, keep... There are good reasons goals. you need yes, that. You, you could, need, yes, exactly. <laughs> there are very good reasons you mm. don't want to send up, you yeah. know, your, your average rock it's star. The same, it's the same reason why sometimes space scientists, they've forgotten that what they're doing is actually pretty cool. But because they might have been interviewed so many times or talked about it so many times, they can lose that sense of awe and wonder. I mean, it doesn't always work because I don't think you can assume that all actors, let alone 90-year-old actors, will be as articulate as that. Let's see what what, um, Tom Cruise is like when he comes back from space. Oh, he'll just jump up and down, you know, if that's overexcited physically. Oh, that sounds sounds rude, doesn't it? But I don't mean it that way. Yes, because I think there there are actors who won't won't be able to do that because I do remember years ago when um, we were both down in Cornwall, 1999, for the Cornwall eclipse. The, you know, it was one of the first one in decades to be seen in the UK. Or not. Or not, exactly. It was cloudy, which was really annoying because we knew it would be cloudy and had wanted to be elsewhere. And where we'd wanted to be was on an island in the Channel Islands, which the Royal Astronomical Society had, had, had gone to. But I was working for the BBC. At the, we were both working for the BBC at the, time, at the time. So we had no choice and they didn't take our advice, which is why we saw clouds. And the only person, the only BBC reporter who was on that island was actually a children's presenter. And um, this guy was so overawed by it that I was told that basically the the commentary for that period was, oh, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, oh, it was <laughs> so so even somebody, even a presenter can't can't always articulate as well as William Shatner. Anyway. After William Shatner's flight, there's been the predictable fuss about billionaires wasting money on space when they should be spending it solving problems on Earth, such as climate change. But of course, as we know, we can do both. And and frankly, without space and the satellites that monitor the Earth, we wouldn't know much about what's going on anyway. Well, ahead of the COP26 climate change talks in Glasgow, I've been talking about the importance of space when it comes to climate change with Liz Cox. She's head of international engagement for the UK Space Agency. 
climate change is affecting us all in different ways. In the UK, we've had these terrible flooding events, and then obviously last year as well, or earlier this year in Germany, but then all around the world as well. You know, there's deforestation happening, cyclones happening on Pacific islands. It's happening in so many different ways. And the crucial thing is that satellites orbiting the Earth help us understand and track and make really informed decisions about climate change. There are eyes in the sky and they can provide imagery and data that can really help to track and and make decisions about climate change. I suppose space gives us a unique perspective, doesn't it? And it's easy to forget that because you can see things from an aircraft. You could fly over the Amazon and see deforestation. But from space, you can see, for example, the whole Amazon. Absolutely. In the programme that I work on, for example, the International Partnership Programme, which is our Space for Sustainable Development initiative, the thing that, that I always talk about is the additionality of space with other data, so ground and airborne data. So it's those layers of information that can really provide that complete and hugely valuable picture. Now, you mentioned the International Partnership Programme. Just give us an overview of what that is without getting too too corporate and too too government about it. (laughs) I can give you quite a passionate idea of what IPP, um, the International Partnership Programme, is about because this is the thing that I I spend all my time on. It's just an excellent programme. The whole premise of IPP is about developing really innovative, space-based solutions that can help countries and communities adapt to climate change and and then other development challenges. So it is things like health, deforestation, reducing maritime problems, renewable energy, urban planning. One of these is a really exciting project. It's called DEMOS and this is a dengue fever forecasting system. My name is Gina Taruhi and I am the Demos project manager. Dengue is the fastest spreading mosquito-borne disease in the world today and in particular countries in Southeast Asia have suffered some major outbreaks of dengue fever in recent years. So the main objective of this Demos system is to generate a system that gives health officials several months advance warning of likely outbreaks of dengue fever. Because mosquito survival and biting behaviour is affected by environmental conditions, we can use earth observation data and weather forecasts to predict changes in dengue risk up to six months in advance. So what sort of difference can this make? I mean, ultimately, this is about saving people from serious illness or or death even? That's correct. I think the key difference that the system has made in Vietnam is that it has changed the Vietnamese government's approach to dengue. So from a reactive uh, approach, they have moved into a proactive one. So now they can proactively take actions on the ground to start, for example, spraying chemicals for eliminating the mosquito breeding grounds. There are some great benefits to all of the activities that are going on in space in one way or another, but it's the impact of space on the ground that I think is really important for everybody to remember and and be aware of. Uh, And this ongoing investment in space is crucial to all of us. Liz Cox from the UK Space Agency and Gina Saochi from the DEMOS project. 
This is the Space Boffins podcast. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. You can get in touch with us via all the usual social media channels or email us info at boffinmedia.co.uk or podcast at spaceboffins.com. We'd love to hear your comments, suggestions, questions or just fun pictures you've had really. Actually, that one I posted about our dinner in the spacecraft went down really well, didn't it? Well, I was wondering whether there's a crossover here between a, a space podcast and Food. a foodie podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering whether we should rebrand and get some free food. That's, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'd be happy to do that. And and if... Um, one drink. One, yes. Oh, obviously. Um, and if you haven't seen that photo basically it's in a gordon ramsay restaurant in east london which I'm, sounds posher than it, it was yeah it's yeah. not it's just mostly brown food but the spacecraft inexplicably really seems to have just been built for this restaurant as a sort of oddity because it's not a space themed restaurant in any way shape or form and the staff are brilliantly friendly and fun but you know they they arrive and I didn't correct them with this word but I did want to they said oh yes would you like to come to the spaceship and as we were walking over I was muttering to Richard it's a spacecraft it's not a spaceship it's a spacecraft not a but you um, you have to have a set meal and it was just brilliant because it looked like a, a nice silver but shiny Apollo style capsule with co- so many courses we could barely walk afterwards because we were so full. But wasn't it fun? It was fun. See, look, there's loads of potential here yeah. of space themed Absolutely. I think, you know, if I was going to change careers, that would be really fun to do, wouldn't it? It's just have everything space themed on the walls spacecraft that people could eat in because you could have sat because it was like a curved sort of bench wasn't it so it was just us two but you could have had four people in there easily so yeah you could have different and you could have different style space oh, i'm getting quite excited about this now you've gone away from you've gone away from podcasts <laughs> you're actually you're creating a whole new business on I a space themed i'm just restaurant. thinking if you had like a shuttle a mock-up of a shuttle. Admittedly, you're obviously wasting quite a lot of space with the wings, but maybe you could have people having a table on the wings. But you could have a group, a private group, on a long table inside a small mock-up Oh, I see, in the the bay. Yeah, and then you've got the little Apollo capsules for a more intimate. Maybe you could have a Mercury capsule for a, you know, dinner for two. (laughs) (laughs) No, dinner for one on Mercury. Actually, that's true, yes. (laughs) I was trying to be sociable, yes. That's Gemini, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I like that. Well, I'm sure um, someone will mention, but John Young uh, famously brought uh, corned beef on board a Gemini capsule, and that was a mistake. Why? Well, corned beef's a really dry food. And they spent the rest of the mission picking out corned beef from the <laughs> instrument panel. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll have to think of a menu. If anybody's got idea of food that would... Uh, maybe we'll put that... I'll put that on Twitter and Facebook. Is some suggestions for food. Suitable oh, space-themed space space So you're, you're suggesting... Hang on. You're suggesting we should open a space-themed restaurant. No, I, in, my, in my... Yes, in my head, yes. See, I have been... I, well, the best, the best bar I went to, which wasn't space-themed, yeah. but was train-themed. Now, you've seen pictures of this. This was in Moscow. Oh, and yeah. sadly, I've told it's closed now. But you basically... Someone came around to take your order, and the, the uh, beers or food, they could fit pizzas, <laughs> uh, were delivered by train. 
Ah, so, well, so these mobile carry. trains. Ah, but we could do that. See, I'm wondering whether you could do something similar with rocket. Oh, with a crawler. <laughs> yes, but that would be a really long wait. <laughs> five hour wait. <laughs> you'd have to, yes, you'd have to uh, pre-book your drinks. But you could, couldn't you? You could yeah, have you a could little have a rocket crawler, crawler that that, yeah. that comes out. Yeah. Oh yes. Oh, I think I think we've got we've got we've got something there. Yeah. Surefire business. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Please send us some uh, food. Food. What would be on your menu? Now, if you're still listening, a few <laughs> years ago, I was at NASA in Houston making a radio program and I met Apollo engineer Jerry Woodfill. And we sat on a bench in front of the giant Saturn V rocket and he just talked. And I struggled to get a word in edgeways, but it was fascinating. And I've been wanting to interview him again for a long time. So we've done that. He was responsible for the Apollo alarm system, crucial during the Apollo 13 mission. What's remarkable is that 55 years after joining NASA, he still works there. Now, we're going to talk to Jerry about Apollo 13 in a future podcast. But in this first new interview, we discuss his inspiration for joining the space program, the Apollo 1 fire, which killed three astronauts, and the near disaster in Apollo 10. Now, unfortunately, the combined efforts of a NASA engineer and uh, ex-BBC producer weren't enough to successfully extract audio from Jerry's phone, so the quality of the recording isn't as good as I would have liked. Uh, The interview also features a brief astronaut profanity and begins with another disclaimer. So if some things that I share are a little bit, you know, incorrect, Cut me some slack. It's because it's over 50 years ago, all right? (laughs) We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. I've spoken to you a couple of times. I remember when I first spoke to you, the fact that you're still working at NASA is extraordinary to me. But you were there at Rice University when Kennedy gave that famous speech. That was your inspiration. I mean, you're like the poster child for NASA. <laughs> I like that word, poster child. That's good. I'm going to be 79 years old next week. Okay, so I like being called a poster child. Wonderful. Yeah, I was uh, about, well, I guess it would have been 20 years old, 21 years old. And I was in Rice Stadium and listening to the president as he shared that momentous talk. In fact, some, if you go look back on history, the, the greatest uh, speeches of all time. Well, that's always listed as one of them, the one he gave at Rice Stadium. So I was there and I heard it. And for me, it was significant because I was a struggling engineering student. In fact, uh, I think I had the lowest grade ever made at Rice in differential equations. It didn't look like I was going to go anywhere. But when President Kennedy came and he said, we do this thing not because it's easy, but because it's hard. When I heard him say that, I thought my studies were hard. I was not doing well. But if we could go to the moon, certainly I could just focus and graduate. And so what I did, I was on a basketball scholarship, Richard. Uh, I wasn't doing well on that either. I had the lowest shooting percentage of anybody that ever played basketball for the Rice Owls. And so I gave up my basketball scholarship and I graduated. And so uh, NASA at that time uh, was 
involved in the Gemini program. And so most of the engineers were uh, focusing on Gemini, you know, the two-man vehicle that would test out all the procedures that you need to actually prove that to go to the moon. And so because of that, when NASA hired me, I was, I guess, one of the first guys that came into my division and they assigned me instrumentation group, measurements and instrumentation group. And really, that was basically switches and gauges. And I was very disappointed. I said, I took, it, took all these courses and solving the quantum equation and all these kinds of things. And they assigned me switches and gauges of all things. But they also needed a guy to look over the alarm system for the mothership, that's the command module. That's the three-man vehicle that with the lunar lander goes out to the moon and it orbits the moon and then the lander goes down to the moon. And so I was given the alarm system for the actual mothership. They said, well, he's our electrical engineer and we need a guy and he's our man. And so they never asked me about my F minus or anything like that. They said, he's got a degree, a BS degree in electrical engineering. So that's what I became. And so in that capacity, I began to meet many of the Apollo astronauts because they wanted to know what this guy that's actually responsible for their lives, basically. And I always think back to that day at Rice Stadium. And then when John Kennedy gave that speech to Congress, he said, we're going to send a man to the moon and then return him safely to the earth. Well, I was the guy that was directly responsible for returning him safely to the earth. Because if I didn't do a good job, that was going to really affect the situation on returning him safe to the earth. You were involved in, in pretty much the whole Apollo program because when you joined, Gemini was ongoing. Yeah. You saw firsthand the problems with Apollo 1 that led to the, the tragedy and the, and, and the loss of life of, of, the three, of the three astronauts. That's for sure. In fact, that's one of the main things I always share about my career is I came on so early. They were just actually testing out the boost system, you know, the Saturn V and, and how the command ship and all those things would work together as the boost system and so forth. And so I was responsible for the alarm system on Apollo 1 as well. And I had already gone out to the manufacturer of Apollo 1. They called it Spacecraft 12. That was the designation for that command ship that was going to take our first crew to test it out in orbit. So I went out to the manufacturer, North American Rockwell, and when I got there and they checked me in uh, through the secretary and they gave me my badge, there was another gentleman checking in as well at the same time, and it was Roger Chaffee. So that's where I met Roger Chaffee, and he and I that week, it was the final test and uh, signing off and saying that a spacecraft of Apollo 1 was ready to go to the Cape and then be launched in January. And so during that week, I met Roger, and he and I talked about the alarm system and so forth. And then we had the final review uh, with all these NASA headquarters of people and everyone, and I had to present the alarm system to tell them that I thought it was a, a good system and it would work. Well, they got to Cape Kennedy 
and Roger and Ed White and Gus were in the capsule January 27th of 1967, I guess it was. Roger would have been on the right, Ed White was in the center, and then Gus Grissom was on the left side. Well, the fire was a short circuit under Gus's couch. It had to do with the wiring of the environmental control system that was under Gus's couch. And so when it started, terrible design. We had all kinds of uh, Velcro and flammable materials and didn't even have a fire extinguisher on board. And the oxygen pressure was more than atmospheric pressure. And besides that, it was pure oxygen. It's just a horrible, horrible design to save people's lives. It's horrible. Some uh, places you could see uh, right down to the clear, uh, I presume, copper. Uh, the wires were ragged. Ragged meaning the insulation was ragged where the fire had, you know, eaten away more in one place, uh, less than another. Okay, so what happened? Of course, they perished. And I was the alarm system engineer. So in that capacity, they wanted me to look at the entire alarm system to see how we actually protected astronauts. And we needed to look at that and redesign it so that the future crews would never perish. And because of that, George Lowe, the head of the Apollo program, assigned a group of us. And we went to the manufacturer of the lunar lander, as well as the command module. And we looked at every single alarm and came up with solutions so that that kind of a thing would never happen again. And would we have not corrected the alarm system and the situation, Apollo 13 astronauts would have perished because they were in orbit without heating or so forth in the command ship. And what had happened, their breath had caught water vapor all throughout the cabin during their uh, return to Earth. And so when they powered up the command ship to enter, what happened is all that water vapor in their breath precipitated out and it caused almost droplets of water behind the panel uh, around the switch contacts. But because of Apollo 1, we had coated all those contacts with sort of a goop, it's kind of silly putty, to make sure we never had a short circuit like had taken the lives of Apollo 1 crew. So actually, Apollo 1's astronaut saved the lives of Apollo 13's crew. So that's that, a story that, I don't think is, a lot of people know. That is fascinating. I'd never, I'd never heard that before. I want to come to actually Apollo 10. We have ignition sequence start. Engines on five, four, three, two. All engines running. Launch commit. Liftoff. We have liftoff 49 minutes past the hour. There was a point during that mission where it almost came close to failure. I mean, serious failure and loss of life and the first American crew to lose their lives in space. That is a very interesting observation and request for my analysis of that situation because uh, recently NASA asked me to do a program with a community college uh, library out in East uh, New Mexico. They asked me to do a talk about Snoopy. You remember Snoopy? Apollo 10 they named the lunar lander on Apollo 10 Snoopy, and then the command module, Charlie Brown. So because of that, I said, I'm going to go back and revisit 
Apollo 10 and find out about Snoopy and Charlie Brown. You know, actually, you're talking to Snoopy's veterinarian right here. <laughs> because if Snoopy got sick, you know, the lunar lander, I'm the guy that's monitoring Snoopy's functions because I'm the alarm. So I'm not Snoopy's veterinarian. And then if Charlie Brown, the command doesn't work, I'm the doctor for Charlie Brown. You see, I've, I've got it all. You know, I've got all my alarm system is monitoring Charlie Brown's pulse and, and his breathing and every other thing that assures that he's safe and well, and he's going to make it back to Earth. And uh, they say that Apollo 10 is always the dress rehearsal, you know. And so um, that really, it was not full dress. Charlie Brown was okay, but Snoopy didn't have enough fuel had he landed to get off the moon. And the, uh, many of said, well, they did that on purpose. So they make sure that Gene Cernan and General Stafford didn't actually go down there and upstage us, Aldrin and Armstrong. You know, that was always the tail toad. But really, the reason that there wasn't enough fuel is that you really didn't need to put the fuel in there. It wasn't for some sinister reason to make sure that Stafford and, <laughs> and Gene Cernan didn't uh, just land. Well, Houston, Houston, this is Snoopy. Right, Snoop, go ahead. It's going. We is down among them, Charlie. Roger, I hear you weaving your way up the freeway. Uh, can you give me a post-burn report? Over. Okay. Now, Snoopy, he is operated standing up. They had put seats in Snoopy to start with, the lunar lander. And my neighbor down the street told me that he went to the manufacturer, Grumman, at uh, one time, name is George Franklin. He said, why are you putting seats in there? It's only six gravity. And why just weight it down with seats? And besides that, seats, you have to sit far from the window. And it's good that they took the seats out because on Apollo 11, because uh, Neil Armstrong could be close to the actual viewing window, he could actually see that Trancody base and the border field. So my, my friend down the street took those seats out. Maybe he saved Apollo 11's <laughs> crew. So anyway, they stood up on either side, two windows, and the control panel, many of the controls are duplicated on the pilot and the commander's side. But between them is a switch. And the switch says you can choose the primary guidance system or the abort guidance system. Well, for, for Apollo 10, once they had actually orbited the moon, they're getting ready to return to John Young in the command module. They were going to return using the abort guidance system to test it out. Okay, so during all the simulations, all the simulation, you know, they over and over and over again, they go through this procedure. Well, during the simulation, the way that it should have gone is that uh, Stafford should have selected the abort guidance system. You can either abort guidance system or primary guidance system, one or the other. So for some reason, Gene Cernan decided to flip that switch to abort guidance before Stafford did. Now, in the simulation, Stafford always flipped that switch. So Stafford just reaches over to flip the switch. Okay, you ready? And the software got all confused because of that mis-switching situation. You been in a gimbal lock? And of course, all at once, 
the, the vehicle was kind of actually not knowing where it was and thrusters were firing. To Tom Stafford's credit, he was actually to take hold of the control stick and bring it back into a nominal position. Yep, who's up, babe? And so that they could actually put it on the board guidance system and do a proper return to the a young in the command module. How, how, yeah, okay, something went wild there on that staging. And we're all set. We didn't lock it. We're going ahead to the auto maneuver. Roger. How close did that come to, you know, being a, a serious incident or even, you know, the deaths of the, of the crew? The, had they not corrected the situation, had they not been able to do it in sufficient time, they would have used up perhaps too much of the RCS, the actually control thrusters, propellant. Eventually, have, have they had not been able to correct the situation, they could actually have crashed into the moon which, you know, that would have really set the program back if we'd ever been able to land many years. You know, in Apollo 1, it was a two-year delay. And we certainly would not have fulfilled John Kennedy's prediction that we'd be on the moon in this decade, as he had said. And therefore, as we set sail, we ask God's blessing on the most hazardous and dangerous and greatest adventure on which man has ever embarked. Thank you. JFK speaking at Rice Stadium in Houston, ending the first part of my interview with Jerry Woodfill. I'm going to have another chat with Jerry in the coming weeks, which I will endeavour to record in better quality, and we'll feature that in a future podcast. The UK Space Agency very kindly supported this edition of the Space Boffins podcast. Do get in touch podcast? with... Podcast? Podcast. Podcast. <laughs> that would be a, like a walking themed podcast. Ah, there's, a, the there's another space... <laughs> that's another spin-off from, from this, this ever lucrative endeavour that we do. <laughs> do get in touch with us via social media and leave a review on your podcast plod I want to say podcast platform I see on your podcast oh my god <laughs> podcast platform of choice thank you mm. there you go now the reason this podcast is delayed is because my dad passed away a week or so back he was a filmmaker and always encouraged my career he taught me editing with tape and razor blades aged 10 and also the basics of filming. So I'll dedicate this edition of Space Boffins to him, although he did never listen to the podcast. <laughs> but he, it, He's got plenty of time now. Peter, <laughs> wherever you are, we know you're up there with Penny. <laughs> Enjoy. But it, it wouldn't be here without him. Thanks for listening.